The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest live on the Highline edition. Remember when, like, two people in New York City knew what the Highline was? You could point at the building, and there were those weird legacy sockets and old man Metcalf. All right, on today's show, the feature film Late Night stars Mindy Kaling as a wannabe comedy writer and Emma Thompson as a TV talk show legend. Can these two women work together and triumph over the sexism so endemic in their guy bro working environment? like Dana Stevens did. The film uh, was also written by Kaling and will be joined for the segment by Slate's own Ingu Kang. And then Dr. John was both a totally singular act of self-creation and a child of the American weird. We discussed the career of a true music legend who died last week at the age of 77. For that segment, we're joined by Slate's Chris Melanthi. And finally, we discuss the daring production of Shakespeare's harrowingly dark masterpiece, King Lear, which was up at the Court Theater. I think it's in the process of closing right now. It stars, uh, starred the legendary English actress Glenda Jackson as Lear, and that's only one of the many very bold choices uh, on the part of its director, Sam Gold. Uh, I would like to introduce, you're filling in for Julia. Those are big shoes. They are, they, they are they're large. I hope I can fill them. Yeah, look a little nervous, kind of raccoony rings around your eyes yeah, exactly. up on that. All right, this is Isaac Butler, the very slate. Hey, everyone. This is the very slate-adjacent Isaac Butler. I love it. Uh, Isaac is a writer, theater director. He's host of the Lend Me Your Ears podcast, co-author with Dan Coyce of The World Only Spins Forward, an oral history of the Angels in America play. And he's writing a history of method acting, which uh, I'm very eagerly anticipating and anticipating talking about with him in the future. Give it up for Isaac Butler. And Dana Stevens. Any attempt to slag on Dana boomerangs so fucking hard right into my, the bridge of my nose, and you'd think I'd learn, but I, I never will. Uh, you're writing a book on Buster Keaton. I am indeed. Good. I'm very excited to see that. I think the three of us are going to talk about acting and method acting on some show in the near future. I hope so, yeah. Yeah, me too. I think before we start off, we're going to get a message from Julia Turner, a pre-recorded message. Hello, Slate Day. I am very sorry that I cannot be there. I also would just like to correct the impression left by my co-host after last week's show. My medical calamity was merely a badly sprained ankle. I am on the mend. I'm very sorry not to be there celebrating this amazing Slate Fest with you all. I hope you have a great show. All right, I don't think I have any other business to do before inviting Ingu Kang up on stage to talk about Late Night. Ingu, come on up. Ingu! She, of course, is a staff culture writer at uh, Slate.com. All right, Late Night. Catherine Newbery is the longtime host of a late night talk show in the Carson Letterman Kimmel Mold. Uh, this is a woman who worked her way up through the brutally sexist ranks of comedy and network TV, and yet, curiously, she has, or maybe not so curiously, she has an all-male writing staff. When her ratings begin to tank and her show is threatened with cancellation, 
In a bid more for relevance than for fairness, she blindly hires the first woman to walk through the door, who just happens to be Molly Patel, a super earnest, super eager, innocent, a comedy nerd whose day job is in a chemical plant. From this premise flow uh, two deeply interrelated storylines. Can Newbery, played by Emma Thompson, save her show by rediscovering her own authentic voice buried beneath decades of TV mugging and pandering? And can Patel, played by Mindy Kaling, overcome her status as a condescending diversity hire and make it, this is so fucking long-winded, oh my god, there's a lot of fucking words on this script, and make it in the Darwinian boys club of a late night writer's room. I got to the end. Why don't we listen to a clip? Uh, if I may, I just want to say it is such an honor to meet you, Miss Newberry. I'm Chris Reynolds. Uh, my name is Eugene Mancuso, and when my parents got divorced, this show... I don't show... know who any of you are. I don't know who any of them are. Um, oh, well, uh, Tom? I'm, I'm Tom. I, uh, I write the monologue. Uh, I'm actually the youngest monologue writer in the history of the show. No, 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 I was just, I don't care. No? Okay. Do you know what? I'm not going to remember any of this, so here's what we're going to do. Um, you're one. Two. Three. Four. Hi, Catherine. Oh, Birdie, thank God. How's your baby? She's 27. Her baby's doing well. She's just started preschool. She's, uh... Never mind. I don't want to know. I don't know why I asked, actually. You're five, six, seven. That's what I'm going to call you all from now on. It's just easier. Are we allowed to call each other by our own names? Just, just learn the numbers, Reynolds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, two? Yeah. Can one and I switch? I'm, I'm just, I'm the most senior writer. I'll take seven, seven. Okay, can we just get into it now and see if we can salvage anything yes. worth taping? All right, so this is probably self-explanatory, but to set it up a little bit, uh, Newbery has not been in her own writer's room for a couple decades. Finally forced to go in there uh, and make, uh, uh, make some hay. She doesn't want to bother learning the names of anyone on the staff, so she just assigns them uh, numbers. Ingu, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. Hi, hello, hello. Uh, So, Ingu, it's been said about this movie that it's the story of two women at different ends of the showbiz ladder, one at the very beginning, bottom rungish, one top rungish. And then the drama kind of comes out of whether what's best, most true, good, strong, promising about both of them, both as human beings and women, will link up together and overcome this boys' club. Uh, what do you make of this movie? I really liked it. I think that the show, the show like within the movie, doesn't actually make sense. Catherine is this like very haughty, very high-minded person who wants like Doris Kearns Goodwin on like NBC or whatever. Um, that part is not believable at all. I guess neither is the part where there was a female network host for 30 years, but. <laughs> I think like the sort of like romantic, like it's a platonic relationship clearly between Emma Thompson's character and Mindy Kaling's character, but it's largely structured like a rom-com where like one of them sort of has to like woo the other with the qualities that like the other one doesn't have. And I thought that part was perfect and I think it really pointed out to me how much we don't have these mentorship rom-coms, especially when they involve women. And I would really like to see more because everybody knows they completely botched the ending of The Devil Wars Prada and I'm really glad we got a do-over. Mm -hmm. I, should, I should have said long before this that the movie was written by Mindy Kaling uh, and it's directed by Nisha Ganatra. Um, 
Dana, uh, there's a lot to admire about the politics of the movie and the heart of the movie is in the absolutely right place. How does it function as a movie? I mean, I found it a bouncy, zippy, extremely fun experience to sit through. As Inko says, you have to suspend a lot of disbelief to, to believe the universe that this movie takes place in, right? That since the early 90s, there's been this incredibly successful female British. late night host, British, who likes to have on Doris Kearns Goodwin and is very, um, yeah, highfalutin and snobby. So that's already unbelievable that she would still have a show and that she's, she seems to occupy this rung of fame that doesn't really exist anymore if it ever did, right? Um, so you have to accept that sexism has been eradicated in this universe to that degree, but it has not been eradicated to the degree that she has an all-white, all-male white writer's room, mm -hmm. which to me in 2019 actually seems almost too extreme. I almost wish that there had been, for example, a white woman in the, in the writer's room and that there had maybe been some question about, you know, to what degree she has to internalize the sexism of her male colleagues in order to contribute. Yes. There might have been some more complex things to explore besides an all-white, all-male, seemingly all-straight. There's one guy who might be gay, but it's just, it's, it's a very square room into which, you know, this young woman of color, who also, we haven't mentioned this, has no experience, yeah, well, suddenly we'll get appears, there. right? She, her, her previous experience is essentially she works in a chemical plant in Pennsylvania, but she's a comedy nerd and she hosts once in a while sort of amateur fundraiser comedy nights, which we see her do at one point. And uh, again, that just, that suspends our disbelief so far that we're in a universe where there wouldn't be any other women to compete for that job. I mean, I guess the joke of the movie is sort of that they're so desperate to hire a woman that they just hire the first one that walks in the door. But uh, yeah, you have to accept a lot to get to the point where you start caring about these characters. But what sells it is Minnie Kaling's writing, really, really excellent, just very funny, very mean, uh, not at all sort of rah-rah, um, badass girls, right? I mean, there's many moments where she actually uh, sets up that trope, the idea that, you know, I'm a girl and I'm going to kick ass, and it kind of gets, she gets basically a sock in the face, you know, from, from the universe for, for having such a, a vain um, hope. And, I, uh, go ahead. I think one of the things the movie does really well is that a lot of people are going to come into this movie with sort of like a lot of this language about like social justice and privilege and all of that stuff. And even though the movie really wants to take these power imbalances seriously, those same power dynamics that have prevented uh, people like Mindy Kaling's character from entering these rooms at the same time, Mindy Kaling has sort of like a weird relationship with a lot of these issues. And so she also has like her character be made fun of when she says something like, oh, like I'm being crushed by the iron fist of white privilege. And that is a line where you're supposed to laugh at the character, even though that you know that she is ultimately correct. And so I think that sort of like jabbing at like the people who want to complain but not, but not do the work, I think is number one, very Mindy Kaling. And number two, sort of like, prevents the movie from being being this like boring dissertation about like why there are no women and people of color in writers rooms yeah i'll let you talk isaac but i have one one follow-up on that sorry no talking for you it's all right white men have said enough <laughs> 
But I was just going to say that the, the two things that make the movie work, the first one I already said, Mindy Kaling's writing is really sharp and in the ways that Ingu just pointed out, it, it avoids the traps that you think it might fall into. For example, all the guys in the white male writer, writer's room aren't villains. You know, they, they are complex characters too who come to different realizations over the course of the movie and sort of struggle with what it means to have this woman in the writer's room. Uh, but, the, but the second big thing that makes this movie work is Emma Thompson is just incredible. I mean, Emma Thompson has already set the bar very high, right? Everyone loves her. She's fantastic in every role. But she's never played a role quite like this. It's a little bit toward the, the Miranda Priestly side, the Meryl Streep character in Devil Wears Prada, but not as Corella Deville-like. <laughs> you know, she's from the beginning much more nuanced. And she's someone who you believe simultaneously that she's completely passionate about her show and wants to defend it at all costs, and that she's gotten kind of lazy and complacent and is... is leaning on a writer's room that's writing the same stale jokes. And that's a complex thing to believe about a character you just met. I, but it makes complete sense, and she really builds that character from the inside out. I, this is a good opportunity to bring in Isaac. I mean, uh, uh, that was exactly where my capacity to suspend disbelief flagged. I, is she this high-strung perfectionist with sort of highbrow tastes, or is she this lazy, phoned-in, laurel-resting, you know, icon who doesn't really She's give a shit. She's both things. And I can think of many hosts who are, you know, like people at that level of fame who have those two, those two veins at once. I don't know. Did that, did that seem believable I, so to you, Isaac? I, I guess I feel like Emma Thompson has been so great for so long that we take for granted how brilliant she is in everything. And this is a movie that doesn't work if you put literally any other actor, even any other really good actor in that role, because she has to sell these two sort of opposite things at the same time. It's a person who has an, a public image and an image of themselves as a perfectionist, but has actually reached this sort of coasting place. And she has to establish that extremely quickly. I mean, the movie's under two hours long, right? So, so it has to sort of get you on that page very fast. And you know, like, I, like when I was a kid, you know, like the, the, the pinnacle of acting for me were those four movies she did with Kenneth Branagh, right? Uh, uh, Henry V, Dead Again, Peter's Friends, and Much Ado About Nothing. And that she is still, <laughs> this many years later, like knocking it out of the park is, is really impressive. It's actually, I think, I was thinking about this a lot. That role is really hard. Um, and you have to do a lot of hairpin tonal shifts that she gets really well. If I remember correctly, Thompson actually started in the Cambridge Footlights, the same um, sketch comedy group that Monty Python came out of. And you know, you can tell that she has comedy experience. She sells a lot of jokes that uh, I, I think you know not every actor could sell. I just was like, really think she makes the movie with that role. But it's also the kind of role because she's serving the text. It's a summer comedy. It's very charming. It's it's frothy in a lot of ways. Where you where the acting doesn't always get as lauded as it should. Mm -hmm. I think, and I really I, I think it's an Oscar-worthy performance to me. It's not the kind of movie that would get in the Oscar conversation. It's too early in the year. It's a comedy. It's about women. But, uh, but she deserves one, I think. I, one thing I also want to add is that I feel like Emma Thompson for a very long time has been pegged as like the ugly woman, especially if you take a movie like uh, Sense and Sensibility or Nanny McPhee or just like so many ranges... Uh, 
like for most of her career, she's been sort of pegged as a matron. And I think one thing I love about this movie is that it really refashions her into this fashion icon, which you would not expect. She has this like platinum David Lynch pompadour. She has these giant platform sneakers. Her blazers are to fucking die for. <laughs> and I think one of the things that so this role was sort of written by Kaling for Emma Thompson specifically. And I love that she has also given Emma Thompson this space to visually remake herself. I really don't think that like, aside from maybe like the red carpet, because Emma Thompson hates high heels and has been on like a years long campaign against them, that like people really know how much she loves fashion sneakers. And the fact that this movie finally gives everyone a chance to just like revel in her very specific fashion sense. Please go watch this movie. <laughs> Wait, I have to add that, especially because she just wore white sneakers to her knighthood ceremony and was much Stella harsh McCartney. upon in England for that. Um, yeah, she's now Dame, right? Isn't that what you would call her? I, I think Dame so. Emma Thompson. I, so I, I have to say, I kept thinking during watching the, the watching of this movie, you know, hey, late night, 90, 1992 is calling. It wants its movie back. It takes place in this kind of pre-2008, even pre-millennium, sensibility, even though it obviously is contemporary. But I'll tell you what I loved about that is that it's an a actually a movie about a, an innocent. I mean, you know, when you think about her, what makes her character, Kaling's character distinctive is its earnestness, eagerness, uh, enthusiasm. And it just has this kind of wide-eyed, kind of urban ingenue character, as if the person hasn't already gone sour with irony from living in New York City for 20 or 30 years. I really disagree, though, because I think what Mindy Kaling does is give you this ingenue, and then basically she goes through all of the sort of tropes of that ingenue, where, for example, Emma Thompson's character says, like, oh, what do you think is wrong with the show? On her first day of work, clearly, if you are that person in real life, you say nothing. And instead, she goes on this, like, big tear about, like, everything she thinks is wrong with the show. And again, you have Mindy Kaling making fun of, like, the naivete of that ingenue. Mm -hmm. And I think that was, for me, like that rewriting of that ingenue role and sort oh. of like poking at how, poking out, pointing out how silly that character is was one of my favorite things about the movie. Oh, no, 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 absolutely. But, but what she didn't do is create a character who has this acidic, sort of corrosive, cynical wit that people at the chemical plant just don't get. And then when she finally is transplanted into a late night writer's room, she's allowed to sort of bloom in this you know, uh, cynical way. Are you saying that people who work at chemical plants can only have acidic wits, Stephen? I Sorry, that was a really bad joke. <laughs> All right, well, we have to wrap it here, but the movie is uh, Late Night, starring Mindy Kaling, written by her as well. We've been joined by uh, Ingu Kang of Slate. Thanks so much for coming on the show. See you soon. All right, for our next segment, uh, we have a treat. We have Chris Malanfi in the house. Chris, come on up. Hey, what's up, Highline? <laughs> he was born Malcolm John Rebenack in New Orleans. True story, through his mother's modeling connection, he was the baby on the ivory soap ad for a spell. Did you know that? I don't think I did. Oh, I, know, I know something that Chris Malanfi doesn't know. 
It's a remarkable moment. There's plenty. Thanks to his family's love of music and his grandfather's background, and yes, I hope we talk about it, minstrelsy, he became a musician. First, he mastered blues guitar, but after getting shot in his ring finger, I mean, every piece of the story is so improbable. It's amazing. He gets shot in his ring finger, and he's able to transfer all of his immense musical gifts to a new instrument, as one does, to the piano. He became a maestro in the very New Orleans tradition of Jelly Roll Morton and uh, Professor Longhair. Um, after, uh, as a, he played as a sesame musician with everyone from Zappa to Sonny and Cher, became a dope addict, served two years in prison for dealing, and ran a brothel. And then, out of the crazy stew of his life, uh, and uh, out of his growing fascination with voodoo, voodoo, he created an alter ego, Dr. John Crow? Yeah, I'd say Crow. Yeah, Dr. John Crow, the Night Tripper. And in 1968, comes out with the album Grigory and Chris. Let's begin there. Uh, why don't we pick a track to listen to? Why don't we play, let's, well, let's play Gree Gree Gumbo Ya Ya, which is the first track on the first album of Mac Rebenack as Dr. John, right? He's recorded before this, but this is his debut album as Dr. John, and it's the first track. And uh, hopefully we can hear the, the sort of statement of purpose right from the opening lyric. They call me Dr. John, known as the Night Tripper. Got my satchel of green green in my hand. Then you're tripping up and back down the bayou. Okay, you get a free lifetime slate plus plus membership if you come up here and karaoke that. In Dr. John voice. <laughs> Which, I mean... Where do you begin with this? It, I've rarely, when I caught on to what Grigri was, which I'll admit I only learned about a couple of, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, when Rolling Stone put out one of its 500 album lists. You know, they had like expanded their list. And this album placed in the top 150, I mean, alongside some pretty serious albums by, you know, everybody from B.B. King to Chuck Berry. And I'm like, Gree Gree, really? And I played it and it's amazing. And the, the thing that's amazing about it is that you rarely see an artist invent a persona on the first track of his first album and it sticks, you know? It's kind of like it came out fully formed, you know? Um, and but at, to Steve's point, by this time, you know, as Mac Rebenack, and he recorded under that name, he's already released singles, he's played with Professor Longhair, he's played sessions with everybody from, I don't know, Phil Spector to, you know, uh, uh, Sonny and Alan, Sonny, Right, well, Alan Toussaint. Alan Toussaint. Uh, you know, and he's steeped in that New Orleans world, and he comes by it very honestly, but then he decides that he's just, again, having already reinvented himself from a guitarist to a pianist, he then reinvents his, you know, name, and it, it sticks almost immediately, you know, D Dr. John the Night Tripper, and, you know, this whole album, Gree Gree, if you, if you haven't listened to it, it's, it's really amazing. Uh, it's kind of like a, a complete statement. It's got this New Orleans funk. It's got Afrobeat in it. It's got voodoo in it. It's got voodoo lyrics in it. Um, and it's got some of his most acclaimed songs. In fact, another one we should probably play because I think it's his most covered song is the last track on the album, I Walk on Gilded Splinters. Uh, in its original version, it's about seven minutes long, so pick a spot, but it's, it's really amazing. Walk on Pizzanito, 
what they can do. Walk on gilded splinters with the cane of the Zulu. actually first heard I Walk on Gilded Splinters when I was reviewing, uh, of all people, a Paul Weller album in the 90s, and he turned that baritone sax line into a guitar line, and it kind of always works. It's, it's hypnotic. And Dr. John was one of those people like, I don't know, James Brown or whatever, who had like an innate musical sense so that even if he wasn't the one playing it, he knew what the record needed to sound like. He he knew the atmosphere. He knew how to arrange as well as play. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Chris, it's funny. Here's why I avoided Dr. John up until about 48 hours ago. Right place, wrong time. We should probably play that because it's his one hit. He had one huge hit, and I, it's not a song I respond to at all. And then I put on Gree Gree a couple days ago. I was like, this music is fucking amazing. Oh, my God. Anyway, well, why don't we listen to Right Place? Wrong time, and then I want to bring in Isaac and Dana. Isaac, did I catch you making a face when I said I didn't like that song? A, a little bit. I don't know. I just find like uh, there's some Dr. John tracks that aren't that are better than others. Often it's actually due to the production. I find less than the actual songwriting or playing. But I just feel like if there's ever a Dr. John song playing, you're going to have a good time. Like it's just it's going to be a good. That's time. why. That's why I didn't respond to it. I yeah, guess. I guess. <laughs> Uh, you know, I mean, there's just something about the way he blended those different strands of the New Orleans sound, you know, into this really heady mix that just really works. I mean, it also helps that that track, the backing band, is the meters, isn't it? I mean, it's, is it the me it's the meters and on that album. And I'm not sure if he's playing on this track. It's Alan Toussaint himself is also playing on that. Right, right. So it's as New Orleans as it gets. And yet it's his crossover hit. It's a top 10 hit in the summer of 1973. Uh, by the way, those of you who've seen the movie Dazed and Confused, it's the song that's playing when Wiley Wiggins walks into the pinball arcade. It's got this great atmosphere to it. Um, it's his only top 40 hit, so it's like his one crossover moment, but it's, you know, very authentic. Um, Jack Hamilton wrote the, um, I guess you could call it obituary for us at Slate, and he had this great line in it in which he said, in the 21st century, almost any casual music fan knows who Dr. John is, but far fewer could probably name more than one or two of his actual works. And that may sound like it's damning with faint praise, but his point is that you know the persona. You, you, know, mm -hmm. you, you could probably name Right Place, Wrong Time, but you know the persona, you know the voice, you know the, the style. Um, you know, he's one of those guys like Tom Waits or Neil Young where like, the, the voice itself is probably trademarkable you know, uh, and, and imitatable. Um, you've so, also heard him as a session musician. I mean, the, the, yes. the, the number of landmark records, I mean, he was on, he's, plays on Ricky Lee Jones' first album. He plays on Exile on Main Street. I mean, the number of landmark really? albums that you can hear him play oh, wow. on, even if you never hear his voice, is really, really incredible. Yeah. Um, Dana, why do I feel as though you in your lifetime have done something dark and unbidden <laughs> with Dr. John playing in the background? <laughs> oh, this will be good. Just go, just go out. You will feel so much lighter after you say it. Just go ahead and say it. It's okay. Oh, she... 
I know you want to <laughs> alleviate this. I mean, that actually does relate to the thing that I want to say about Dr. John, though it's not autobiographical. Shockingly. Yeah. <laughs> Darn it. Which is that it really strikes me lyrically, to the extent that you can kind of make out the lyrics in this verbal soup of what the Grigri album is, that uh, he's got a lot of songs that are about music itself, right? I think the term second line, right, the, the New Orleans um, music group second line, comes in in this first or second song in, this, in the album it's mentioned. Uh, he, I think in that very first song, the sort of introduction of the character that you mentioned, he also says something about, it's, it's just a great kind of soul singer type thing, like, now I'm going to give you the medicine. You know, he names himself as a doctor because he's about to treat the audience with the medicine of his song that will somehow cure all of their ills, uh, which made me think, among other songs, of uh, Marvin Gaye's Sexual Healing, right? The right. idea of, like, music yeah. as this medicine we're, or something like closer. that. We're getting closer. We're getting closer. And so, <laughs> so that's, that was, uh, this is not even a, a really very smart thing to say, but there's just voodoo and darkness and magic really evident everywhere in this music. It's, it's explicitly referenced in the lyrics, and it's, you know, it's obviously bubbling up through the musical style as well. And he took his role as an ambassador to New Orleans music seriously. You know, he's one of those people like Professor Longhair, like Alan Toussaint, like the Meters, uh, like Fats Domino, um, who... The heritage, as you said, Dana, it was very self-referential. It's kind of like he saw his role uh, as, you know, representing for New Orleans. Um, when um, Hur Hurricane Katrina happened in the mid-aughts, uh, he appeared on any uh, several benefits, benefit albums. He, he did, you know, covers and collaborations to raise money for the, the repair of the city. Um, so it, it, he came up through New Orleans and played with all the greats and he kind of, that, that was text and subtext of all of his work. Um, and that goes right through to the end. Uh, one other album I thought we should play a song or two from is, um, he did an album in 2012. This was actually the album where I got to see him live. I'm glad I got to see him live before we lost him. Uh, in 2012, he did an album with Dan Auerbach of the uh, Black Keys uh, called Lockdown, which made lots of top 10 lists that year. It's an excellent album. Um, and it's funny because you can definitely hear the influence of the guy from the Black Keys on it, and yet it still absolutely sounds like a Dr. John album. It's still got that spooky voodoo sound. Um, it's, it's got the Afrobeat that was sort of an obsession of his, uh, you know, like uh, the, the guitar. In fact, if uh, we could play a song... Um, I think there's a track called Ice Age, which I really like, uh, that's got a phenomenal guitar part on it. That. So, like, you can hear his voice has gotten gravelier, he's older, but, like, the sound is still fundamentally his. And I remember reading a review when this album came out where everybody said, uh, the, the, the critic said, you know, the, the worry was that Dan Auerbach was going to sort of take Dr. John and, like, try to turn him into some version of the Black Keys. And, in fact, it was Dan Auerbach who had to keep up with Dr. John because the album still is, has all of his obsessions, all of his sonic trademarks. Uh, from the guitar parts, which are probably being played by Dan Auerbach, yet sound like they could have come off of Grigri, you know, 
three plus decades before. Um, he, he, had, uh, he had a real signature right to the end. That dense, dense texture of that made me think of another great line from Jack Hamilton's obituary, which is something that Dr. John said, which was that if Phil Spector wanted to get that wall of sound sound without hiring symphony orchestras, he should have just hired six musicians from New Orleans. And that's pretty much what that sounds like. He was like, really right? scornful about it, too. He's like, what, what is it with Phil Spector and like these 30 musicians and he's got all these duplicate horns and everything? Like He could have hired six guys from New Orleans to get the same sound. This wall of sound, whatever. We could have done that. We have to wrap soon, but I have a small question for Isaac because you're our acting scholar and you sure. watched Treme. Dr. John was an actor on Treme and p played a character that I don't know, but I want you to hear you talk about it. And there was a wonderful thread from David Simon the night that the news of his death broke where David Simon talked about what it was like to write dialogue for, for Dr. John. So Dr. John has two great television appearances in which he plays himself. One is on Bravo's Top Chef in the season that is set in New Orleans. He comes in to judge a quickfire competition and the running joke of the segment is is that literally no one on set can understand a thing that he says, right? And so he just says this stuff, and they're like, you know, they're like, so Padmalakshmi will be like, how would you, what, what would you advise them in cooking their gumbo or whatever? And then he just, syllables come out mm. that clearly made sense to him, and everyone's just like, Ooh. and then the Treme thing is he plays himself on Treme. Um, actually, when we get to endorsements, I'll talk about that plot a little bit because it's connected to one of the things I'm endorsing. And um, uh, there's a great thread that, that, that Dana, you pointed us to about David Simon trying to write for Dr. John, who's playing himself. So David Simon's hanging out with him, and Dr. John is constantly doing these hilarious transformations of words by just adding extra syllables to them. And um, it's very Shakespearean, actually. Confusementation, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's almost like Dogberry and Much Ado About Nothing or something, right? And so, and so um, uh, uh, David Simon writes some dialogue using words that Dr. John has coined. And then Dr. John, in delivering the dialogue, extends them by even more syllables. And he says something to David Simon like, you know, um, trying to write like me, it's just going to be a tragical mess. Right? And then David Simon basically is like, say whatever you want. And he, you know, kind of invents his own dialogue from there. Okay, I don't think we can exit. I mean, we're not going to get any details out of Dana's dark, satanic grad school nights, apparently. <laughs> before the end of the segment, so apologies for that. But, but I don't think we can exit it without talking a little bit about, this is a persona that he invented, he assumed, and then he would occasionally drop and then reassume. Um, he, in the, as I understand it, in the opening lines of his own autobiography, credits in part uh, this confection to his, I believe, maternal grandfather who did blackface. I mean, was Dr. John Chris or, or Isaac able to occupy some such an original and strange and kind of nebulous racial space that he can get away with the appropriations that he made. I mean, to me, I think part of it, and I don't know your feeling about this, Chris, but his mentor was Professor Longhair, and I right. think Professor Longhair yep. bestowed legitimacy upon him that then his own talent enlarged from there. Got it. But I think if he had not been really a student of, you know, the one of the preeminent living black pianists in New Orleans, yeah. yep. um, uh, that wouldn't have happened. That's sort of my feeling about it. And, and as you said in your introduction, Steve, like, the guy came out, uh, came out of that milieu, honestly, like, he, he was a hustler. He, sure. you know, I mean, he, he came up through, you know, the New Orleans scene and the session musicians and, you know, dealing dirt and, you know, he, he, he was around that scene long enough and, and came up through it and, you know, played with enough people that 
I think people regarded him as a an honest element, uh, a signature element of, of that sound. Okay. Um, and, you know, the fact that people like Alan Toussaint and the Meters played on some of his signature 70s albums, I think, tells you all you need to know that, you know, as far as the core figures of New Orleans rhythm and blues were concerned, he was, you know, right alongside them. I accept that answer. Okay, Chris, as always, it's just an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Chris Malanfi is the host of the Hit Parade podcast, which is fucking amazing. You should check it out. Thanks Thanks, for coming on, man. Thanks, everybody. The division of a kingdom, the bastardry of a son, the crazed renunciation of your one faithfully, faithfully loving child. Just another day at Slate. <laughs> that was a terrible joke, I'm sorry. I just couldn't help myself. The question, who deserves what, haunts every line of the play King Lear. The drama begins with the debatable choice, followed by a senseless one. Lear divides up his own kingdom and passes it on to his heirs whilst he's still alive. Then he demands a public display of affection from those would-be heirs, which rightly, quite rightly, his one true child, his one virtuous child, his daughter Cordelia refuses to provide. What unfolds next is Shakespeare's arguably most dark, harrowing uh, yeah, I tragedy. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it is. I I'd, think it is. I'd say that. Rivals Dana Stevens' grad school nights. Okay, let's, um, let's listen to a clip. Uh, yeah, so to set this clip up real quick, uh, this is from, for those of for you King Lear stands out there, this is from Act 3, Scene 4. So this is, um, uh, Lear is about, you know, Lear's been caught in the storm with his fool and his, 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 his uh, sort of body man, Kent, and they're going into this hovel, and he lets the, it's the first time he recognizes anyone else's pain in the show. He lets the other uh, people go in first, and then he delivers this speech about how he has neglected the um, the impoverished, the wretched of the earth during his reign. And, and it's important, although I'm saying he, that of course you will hear Glenda Jackson playing uh, King Lear in this segment. Let's listen. Wheresoever you are, you buy the pelting of this pitiless storm. How will your houses have your unfed sides, your look and window rackedness defend thee from seasons such as this? Ah! 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 I have taken too little care of this. Take this egg palm. Expose yourself to feel what wretches feel. Okay, now I think we can reveal to the people listening at home that that's actually Isaac Butler doing Glenda Jackson, doing Lear. That's pretty impressive. Give it up for Isaac. That was great. Someone actually wrote into the show and said, I hate it when it's a live show. All the dumb jokes. Uh, Isaac, you said something interesting to me when we went and saw the play together, that uh, however extravagant it gets in its language or intentionally tangled in its plotting, at its heart, Lear is a simple folktale. It was inherited by Shakespeare. It had been around for hundreds of years, but he took it and did something completely unexpected. It was a familiar story to his audience, and he did something completely unexpected. What did he do, and why do you think he did it? Yeah, so King Lear, I mean, you can feel the in the plot setup that it's a folktale, because 
it's like the king has three daughters, the thing is split in three, there's the wicked older sisters and the virtuous younger one. I mean, it feels almost like a Grimm's fairy tale. And it was a legend that had been around for a very long time. And uh, I keep saying this and it's not quite right, but the story is ancient. Lear is like con not quite contemporaneous with the Hebrew patriarchs, but he's not that far after. Um, but there had actually been another play called The History of King Lear a few years earlier, and Shakespeare, as he was wont to do, was like, I will take that. And uh, uh, he did two things to it. He added the subplot with Edgar and Edmund, the brothers who, um, you know, come to war over their own father's estate. And he changed the ending. The original audience of Lear would have expected um, Cordelia and Lear and the King of France to win the battle and be restored to the throne and rule together. Uh, and so if you have to imagine you're the original audience going to see this, like, oh, he's got this new version of King Lear. And then instead, Everyone dies. I mean, it's one of the highest body counts. Other than Titus Andronicus, I think it's the highest body count. I mean, the, the very end of the play, they're like, um, someone has to be king. Kent, why, why don't you be king? And he's like, ah, I'd rather go kill myself, thanks. I mean, like, that's the level of bleakness that the play goes to. But if you were in its original audience, you would have expected a happy, you know, um, end of Cinderella to happen. Basically. I mean, and arguably the most agonizing scene in all of, she I mean, there are many to choose from, but that scene where Lear realized is this scope of what he's done and his law he realizes the ultimate fidelity of Cordelia and the fact that he's lost her never 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 right the the iambic pentameter scanning repetition of never is just at the absolute um you know apex of pain in in, in Shakespeare people have speculated why he may have ended the play like that do you have any thoughts I mean, part of me thinks the gunpowder plot is why the play ends that way, because really? it's not that long before he's writing it. I mean, that's sort of, I mean, there's a weird thing where it's like their whole government was almost blown up, like their whole world almost ended. And I think there's a way in which Shakespeare's reckoning with that in the Scottish play and Shakespeare's reckoning with that here. But I mean, like, we don't have his diary, so we don't, we, we don't no, know. No, of course. But I, I do think that there's a way in which he takes the premise of the story more seriously than the people who have transmitted that story over the years. And he thinks like, this can't end well. You can't have a transition of power that works this way. And it intersects really directly, at least for me, and we, t we talked about this on the Mere Ears a bit, that this is a play that's, to me, this play is deeply suspicious of power. That power is a form of madness. And the more power you have, the madder you become. The England of Lear, there are no institutions other than the monarchy. There is nothing mediating, for you Game of Thrones fans, this will sound very familiar, there's nothing mediating the ruler's power. And so power and madness are the same thing. And in fact, this production, one of the smart things this, that Sam Gold's production does, I think, is it, it, it it tracks this, that Cordelia, uh, that um, Goneril and Regan make a, have a pretty rational case that they're making, like dad's acting pretty right, crazy, right. he banished Kent, he banished Cordelia, he's wandering around with a hundred knights, we gotta do something about this. But then as soon as they get power, they go nuts in a very um, abrupt way that doesn't totally make sense to our post-enlightenment modern selves. And so I, I actually, that was one thing that I really, really um, liked about, there were things I didn't like about the production, but that was one thing 
I really do. Let's get into that a little bit. So Dana, we saw this production over at the Court Theater. It was directed by Sam Gold. We'd previ previously on the show discussed his production of Hamlet off-Broadway starring Oscar Isaac, which I, if I'm remembering correctly, we all regarded as something of a triumph. I loved it. I thought it was the best Hamlet I'd have ever seen. Uh, I know Isaac had problems with it. I, I went into this so excited because I thought that was an amazing Hamlet. And you came out... Eh, I mean, <laughs> it has it has incredible things in it. One of them, I think, is Glenda Jackson's performance. But even as you hear that clip with her delivering the speech on the Heath, what do you hear in the background? A string quartet playing a Philip Glass score that was yes. composed originally for this play. It's cool to have a string quartet on stage playing music during a show, but they were playing every minute of the show. I was not sure what motivated the music coming in and out. Uh, yeah, that was a choice that did not make an enormous uh, uh, amount of sense. Yeah, let me just give the audience a list of some of the because this is a, this is yeah, nothing. Strong it's not, choices. It's a Go strong choice after strong choice after strong choice. So, uh, a woman is Lear. Uh, the same actress plays both Cordelia and the Fool. I really want to hear you talk about that. That's not a traditional uh, pairing. Yeah. Well, but it happens from time to time. It does. It, there's a there's a yes. It does happen from time to time that Cordelia and the Fool are played by the same actor because they have no scenes together. Right. And because Lear has this line at the end where he says, uh, uh, "Oh, you know," there's a part where like people just start dying off stage because there's so many deaths. And he's like, "Oh, and my poor fool's hanged." <laughs> and you don't know if he's talking about that literally the fool has been hanged off stage or if he's talking about Cordelia who is in his his arms. And so sometimes directors double them. So it's like, well, Shakespeare likes doing two things at once and so we're doing two things at once there's also this idea that um that may have been how it was originally done which is like if you know how those plays would have been cast is nonsensical it's like they're we know we're pretty sure we know right. who played the fool right. it was a middle-aged guy middle-aged people men did not play women in Shakespeare plays it would have been totally unusual had they had they yeah done and let me add also the set is very it hits you in the face as soon as you see it it's sort of a gold cube it's, it's very like Versailles it's very Trumpian it's Versailles it's dictator chic it's it's meant to be vulgar in ways that you associate with misused power and and over the course of the play this is important this this uh, very as you say Trumpy gilded palace that it starts out in slowly falls apart so that by the end when you know everybody's killing themselves and disaster has struck those same gilded pieces of furniture are lying broken all over the stage I mean it was visually effective but I don't understand what that set was supposed to mean and it was such a strong set it was the absolute opposite of some sort of theater in the round where there's one broom and one book or something it was just like stuff everywhere candles with actual flame burning in them right like real wine being drunk or maybe it was tea but whatever liquid being thrown around in bottles it was very um just densely packed with stuff and i wonder what do you think that was supposed to mean and convey well i do think the dictator chic comment says something about it. i mean there's a couple moments in the first half that feel almost like satire where the aristocrats are going to go and you know get some tea while these terrible while a banishment is happening you know um uh and to me I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time with Lear over the last year. This is the third Lear I've seen in the last 12 months. I read it many times to do the podcast. We did the podcast episode about it. And so, you know, I, I do have some, some set ideas about Lear. And, and one of them is, is that it does not take place uh, uh, in a society, really. There isn't really a society. Do you know what I mean? Like there isn't social bonds. There aren't institutions. It is a, you know. And so there is a weird way in which that setting 
um, clashes with actually politically, and it is a deeply political play, what is going on in the play, which is this world where there are no checks and balances. And there's a weird way in which this sort of fashionable, everyone's in suits, it's one of those kind of things, um, uh, 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 goes against what I think is going on in the play. But I do think it's about sort of contemporary power, the gaudiness of it, the inhumanity of it, the way we'll sip our wine while horrible things are going on in Guantanamo. So you, you're just quickly, you're saying that it's Gold's interpretation in this production that this is a world without a society? No, no. Or that's inherent in the play? I, I think, I think, and this is maybe a conservative thing, a small-c conservative thing to say, but I believe that inherent in the play yeah. is, is that there is not a real, there isn't a real society how we Th think that's of That's what I thought you were saying, which makes me want to follow up with Dana or, or Isaac, either one, but that, it's, that, that that would then make somewhat explicable the somewhat outre choices of the director, which result, ultimately, I'd like to hear if you agree, in a play in which each character appears to be in a different production of the play, right? The kind of asocial or anti-society aspect of the, in, you know, as Isaac is saying, is intrinsic in the play, certainly is on display in the production. Everyone seems to be phoning in from, to me, phoning in from a different universe. But I'm not sure that that's a deliberate choice rather than just a jumbled series of choices that don't quite make sense together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All three of the daughters have different accents, and I found that a very strange choice. I mean, maybe they're just using their home accents from their own country, but that also gives it an odd... I don't know. I don't. I actually don't know what's going on with the way this this movie. I mean, this this play was directed. There's too many different kinds of performances, and even though there's that golden set, there's not any uh, sense of the people, right? There's not. It's not really about income inequality or the people right. that don't live like that. And, and in fact, the Anthony Schur one that was at BAM a year ago from the RSC starts with the people. It's taken from a Soviet film, but it, like that image. But it starts with the people on stage, the people of of Britain, awaiting to hear about the succession because their lives are going to be forever changed by who's in charge. And instead, this is like firmly in the, <laughs> in the 1%, right? They all have to go in disguise and rags to learn about the, the other experience. I, I felt like this was a production um, where there were just a, an enormous number of choices going on and not all of them had been quite filtered out yet by the time it it opened. And some of them I thought were extremely strong and some of them weren't. The one that I thought was really um, the one that I thought worked the best had to actually do with uh, sorry I'm looking it up here right here. I apologize. The one that I thought uh, uh, worked the best was actually having to do with the um, actor Russell Harvard who plays Cornwall. And so Cornwall, uh, the actor who plays Cornwall is deaf and um, he, has a, he has a kind of body man on stage with him played by Michael Arden who does live sign language interpretation of the play to him and then he signs his lines and Arden um, says them. And then in the scene of Gloucester's blinding, one of Cornwall's servants turns against him and says, no, Lord, don't do this, essentially. And it's that servant. And I, I think I literally turned to you and was like, that's so smart. Because uh, it, like, it, it, it deepens that character who has like four lines and then dies in the original play. Um, and it was this great setup and payoff that you don't see coming. Um, and it, it was just like, it makes you hear and watch the play in a different way. Especially since as soon as he says, no, Lord, don't do this, they have the rest of the argument in sign language and it's not translated. Um, and so like that was an example of a choice that I thought worked really well. But then um, there were others, the string quartet, being one of them that I was sort of like, huh, okay. Well, it was the Sam Gold production of King Lear. It was at the Court Theater. It starred Glenda Isn't Jackson. Isn't there one more night to see it? And there's 
well, by the time this podcast is out. That's true. But you and the, you and the audience can still <laughs> run out and see it. You can run out and see it, and there will be tickets. All right, moving on. All right, now's the moment in our podcast where we endorse day... Nah. I wish I could do it. I wish I could do it in a Dr. John voice. I'm just sad it's your delivery that's getting applauded and not me. (laughs) Um, All right, I'm going to just continue the Dr. John conversation by way of leading into the dance party that Chris Malampi is about to spin for us here on the High Line. Um, A Dr. John song that we didn't get to and that probably among aficionados is considered a very mainstream, uh, I don't know, it was was a Grammy-winning duet that he performed with Ricky Lee Jones. Does anybody know this? Uh, of, of an old 20s song, Making Whoopi. And it was on an album called In a Sentimental Mood from 1989. It won, I believe, the best vocal duet Grammy from that year. Do we have it? Let's hear a little bit. It's your little love nest Down where the roses swing Yeah, just what's so sweet about that duet is they're obviously having a great time recording it together. It's a real conversation between them. And since they both have that kind of loose, world-weary, we've-been-through-some-shit kind of persona, they just, they really bounce well off each other in that song. And it's just a classic standard. So making Whoopi off in a cinema mood. Love it. Um, Isaac, what do you have? Uh, I have two endorsements. Uh, my Dr. John-related one uh, is actually also a, my Treme-related one, which is... Uh, so in Treme, he's playing himself recording an album and the, uh, as, a, as, a, you know, as a session musician playing on the album, um, which forms the arc of one of the characters over kind of two seasons of the show. And that album is a real album, actually, um, uh, that that character is based on. So it's Donald Harrison Jr. with Dr. John's Indian blues and um, Donald Harrison Jr. is the son of um, uh, Donald Harrison Sr. is a big uh, 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 really important person in the kind of Mardi Gras Indian and um, uh, New Orleans jazz world and uh, Donald Harrison Jr. is trained at the Berklee School of Music and this is the album where he sort of brings his modern jazz sensibility and the New Orleans sound together the album features um, uh, uh, Mardi Gras Indian calls and shouts from his father. It features piano, amazing piano work from Dr. John, uh, uh, and it's just every every track on it is amazing. And I think I forget which track. To, is it Indian Red? Is that the one? Yeah. Okay. So we're we're gonna listen to a little bit of uh, Indian Red. It also has a great version of um, uh, 
Professor Longhair's uh, uh, Big Chief, which is the song that Lily Allen sampled on her first big single. So um, uh, uh, it's uh, anyway, it's a it's a masterpiece. Um, I also want to recommend a book real quick, um, which I think Dana especially would get a kick out of, which is a book by a woman named Salka Virtel. It's called The Kindness of Strangers. It's actually a memoir from the mid-century that New York Review of Books just reissued. Um, Salka Virtel, no one knows who she is today, but she was Greta Garbo's screenwriter like and best friend. And she wrote many of Garbo's um, uh, films. But before that, she was an, uh, a stage actress, a Jewish stage actress from Poland, uh, who was born in the late 19th century and basically like if there was a circle of European or American intelligentsia she moved in it over the course of her life through her theater career so she worked with Max Reinhardt she was in the she was in the uh, the Weimar Republic as a stage actor knew all of those people escaped to Hollywood uh, uh, when the Nazis came to power her house was a salon for all of the refugees and expatriates who built Hollywood it's that whole kind of um scene that Otto Friedrich talks about in his book City of Nets if anyone's read that so that kind of like all those folks who came out then just like camped out in her living room and so it's this remarkable story of her weaving through all of these different scenes um, transforming from a young actress to an accomplished screenwriter and writer in her own right and then having her career destroyed by the Red Scare it's a really um, amazing book that captures this like very particular time uh, in American history and particularly in the history of film. Excellent. Okay. <clears throat> so what do the uh, West Iconic Diner, a 2012 Albarino, Kawhi Leonard's upper, upper Body Control, Dr. John Plays Mac Rebinac, and uh, a record with, uh, by Jeff Williams, the jazz drummer, and his trio, what do they have in common? Nothing. <laughs> Just absolutely nothing. It's the cutting room for, floor of my endorsement, off of which I'm now going to impromptu pick a couple up. All right, let's go with I mean, come on, Kawhi Leonard, give it up. The guy's about to snatch it away from the Golden State Warriors. He's played like a demon. Um, uh, but also I want to uh, endorse, there's a, um, a jazz drummer named Jeff Williams, uh, plays with a trio. He's got an album out called Bloom. It's a terrific record. I did hear about it on NPR's Fresh Air, which I know doesn't represent a lot of value add from the point of view of your <laughs> average GabFest listener. Like... You know, it's not the most obscure stream from which to pick your tastes. What I will say is that what struck me about that record was the pianist playing on it is a, I think, very young woman named Carmen Staff, S-T-A-A-F. And uh, her work on the record is completely blowing me away. So I looked her up and she's got two or three records out, uh, one of which is called Science Fair. It's just a great title for a jazz record. I think her playing is, is really beautiful. Reminds me of a, a nicely aged 2012 Albarino. A certain kind of minerally cheek to it. Isaac, thank you so much. <laughs> Dana, thanks. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at uh, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. And we also have a Twitter feed you can interact with us interact with us, there, with us there if you'd like to that's at Slate Cult Fest uh, our production assistant is Alex Barish our uh, producer is Benjamin Frisch uh, for Dana Stevens and Isaac Butler and Chris Melanthi and Ingu Kang thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you soon and an extra special set of thanks 
The, the scale of the logistical effort that Faith Smith has done to organize this entire Slate Day in two separate venues the entire day, she's incredible. No, Faith, Faith Smith is, is absolutely peerless. I'd also like to thank the Friends of the High Line, of course, Alex and Benjamin, always Jason Gambrell and uh, Britt Pooley. Thank you very much for... Uh, and thank you so much for coming and listening to this. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot.